Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Mohawk, the VP of Engineering at LinkedIn, and we discuss the biggest unspoken secret about developers, the evolution of the CIO role, and one single change you can make to achieve exactly what you want in life. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello. Hello, Joel. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Fantastic. Where are you calling in from? Uh, Sunnyvale. Sunnyvale? Mm-hmm. I saw a, a video on LinkedIn yesterday of a Wookiee's first day at LinkedIn. Have you seen that video? I, you know, I just saw it. It's great. We opened a new building on our campus, and it's uh, all out Star Wars themed. And so they just like went all out with this like opening theme of, I thought everyone did such a fantastic job acting too. I thought the Wookiee was great. I thought Princess Leia was fantastic. Yeah, it just, it shows a lot about the culture and that it looks like a cool place to work, like a lot of great people over there. Oh, for sure, totally. Our facilities team, honestly, is just unbelievably amazing. They go all out and it, you know, it feels like, it feels like there's this like level of care. It's really cool. Hey, I had a question though. Uh, did you work at LinkedIn when Kevin Scott was there? I did, yeah. I worked for Kevin Scott. Oh, yeah. isn't he fantastic? He's amazing. I actually, I, I've listened to your podcast with him. Oh, yeah. It was great. I, I love the way you started. You're like, you know, uh, I think you mentioned something about, uh, Kevin, I read something you wrote online. Uh, I feel like I want to hear you explain more things. And that's sort of Kevin's superpower. You sit down with Kevin, you're just like, none of this makes sense, Kevin. Your head is exploding. And then Kevin explains it. And you're like, oh, thank you, Kevin. That makes sense now. Yeah, he has a superpower of like consolidating and simplifying information. No doubt. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So were you born in Sunnyvale? No, I, I was born in India. Uh, I actually grew up, uh, I did all through high school in the Middle East, a tiny country called, island country called Bahrain. Uh, moved to the U.S. for college. Uh, did my undergrad at uh, UT in Austin, Texas. Uh, and then I've been in the Bay Area basically since then. So what, like, what was your first love with technology? Did you play some video games? Like, yeah. So uh, it's funny. Uh, it, it's it, it, it. Does everyone play video games? Is that how everyone starts? Is that why you asked that? Well, yeah. I don't know. That's uh, yeah, that's how a lot of people fall in love with it, and then they're like, yeah, totally. So actually, it's funny. Uh, my first computer was an MSX, uh, which was this like ripoff Microsoft Basic uh, powered uh, gaming computer. And, uh, and so you like boot the thing on and it actually boots up in uh, Microsoft basic. And I remember getting the thing and there was like cartridges, the cartridge gaming. And so obviously my parents borrowed for me for gaming. This was in like the eighties. Uh, they bought it for me for gaming, but you know, like I was actually like, take that cartridge out. Let me, let me add that command line. Uh, and it boots up and it boots up into basic. And I just wanted to start programming. Like it was actually really funny. Uh, and they'd always be like, my brother would be buying new games and he'd be like, Hey, let me have the computer so I can like, you know, play some games on it. And I was like, no, 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 I'm still like programming. And I was programming games for what it's worth. Uh, but I, that's how I fell in love with computing. That's how I fell in love with programming. And I remember actually funny story because I had learned to program in basic at some point in high school, I ended up taking like a formal programming class and they taught, taught us Pascal. And that was the first time I learned that go to statements were bad and it broke my heart. Because like when you program in basic, like go to is your thing. And I was like, oh man, this is terrible. I can't do this anymore. Oh, 
there's so many people right now they're like listening they're like i uh they get it it's like your first your first introduction introduction to best practices right yeah exactly yeah. it's like no go-to's and it's like what what do you mean no go-to's go-to's are the bomb that's how i felt for like six months after i found the author martin fowler <laughs> <laughs> I realized that like everything I knew about programming was wrong. <laughs> There's some really that's smart true. people out there. When I actually, that was a big, um, did you, did you, like when you first learned to like, you have that passion and you're kind of exploring it, but then you find your first book on like best practices and how to organize. And then you realize, mm -hmm. oh, there's so many different ways. Did you have a specific book that like impacted you at all or? Not, not so much a book. So it, it's funny. Uh, I've never been able to be the sort of person who like picks up programming from books. Like it's actually best for me to learn from like watching people. That's why, you know, like people like Kevin Scott, just through my career, I've been really fortunate to have like mentors and people who I can just sort of like soak up knowledge from. But my first, it was really funny. Like my formal education into programming started in high school with Pascal and Pascal, I would say, you know, still sort of relatively, you know, uniquely structured language. I hit college and literally the first class on the first day of college, is functional programming in Haskell. And my mind is blown because I'm just like, wait a minute, everything I knew about programming, everything I knew about computing is wrong. And like, I don't know if you've ever like played around with Haskell. It's like, yeah, I mean, it is a seriously structured functional language and it, like incredibly pure in its intent. Uh, this was before it had the ability to have any kind of side effects. Like you had to you couldn't have side effects like as you were, you know, as you were working on data structures, you had to do it in the flow of your, of your program. And it was just like this incredibly powerful thing, which I like completely reset my brain about how to program and how to manage data structures and how to manage program flow. It's a big deal. So what cool programming stuff do you guys have going on at LinkedIn that you can talk about, right? <laughs> what cool programming stuff do we have going on? What do you mean by programming stuff? Like in terms of like programming uh, language stuff? But what are you, what are you excited about right now in engineering? Oh, in engineering, tons of things, man. So I think, uh, you know, at our scale, we, we, we operate, I think, like it's got to be one of the biggest Java sites in the world. And uh, like really excited about some of the work we're doing in terms of like, you know, working on the Java VM, like really tuning it to our needs, uh, you know, really thinking hard about what kind of garbage collection patterns are right for us, for, you know, this like incredible, like real-time scale going through Java, like pause pauses inside of a GC are essentially disastrous for us. So really thinking long and hard about how we want to tune the JVM and uh, make it work efficiently for us. Beyond that, broadly, things that are sort of really cool right now, you know, two things I'll call it. One, you may have seen the announcement that we're moving to the public cloud. Uh, that's a big deal, uh, a really big deal. Uh, we've invested just tons of effort and infrastructure into scaling ourselves organically, natively. And now as we think about going, you know, going to the public cloud, ton of benefits, but a lot of stuff that we have to start to rethink. You know, uh, how will we leverage elasticity is just a elasticity at massive scale. The ability to spin up thousands of computers all at once to be able to handle offline workloads or burst mode uh, with online traffic. It's just sort of like unique, unique new challenges. Um, and then the second thing that, you know, we haven't really talked about much, but I'm really kind of excited about is I feel like, you know, the classic sort of CIO role in the industry uh, gets a bad rap. Like people think of CIOs as people who are gatekeepers and hold back, you know, their job is like, what can you use and what can't you use inside of the enterprise? And I actually think that when you think about the new landscape of technology, the CIO role is very much the like, how do I empower 
employees to be part of the solution I offer the world. And uh, you think about companies where the, the, the task of the company isn't just to put software up on a website, but it's to deliver a full service. You think about kind of the new sort of demand economy. Uh, and even companies, you know, companies like ours, our sales force is part of our solution. Our support team is part of our solution. It's part of our experience that our members and our customers have. And so I'm really excited about essentially leaning way into making every individual across the company more productive through the application of technology. And I think this ends up being something that gets super underapplied in most organizations. You spend all of your AI and technology smarts in delivering product to your customers and your members, and you essentially ignore the needs of your own employees. And in essence, you sub-optimize your solution. And so we're actually really excited about the ability to take all those smarts, all of our AI, machine learning smarts, all of our technology smarts, give them to our employees, empower them, and essentially, you know, really think about our solution completely holistically uh, as how can our members and customers have the best experience possible through that empowerment. And so how do you do that? Do you just find people for that role? Like you have someone thinking about that full time, like how do you actually execute that? How do you make that transition from outward to caring about both? I think it's less about finding somebody new to do that job and more about actually re sort of recognizing that the job is all of the above. And it's like, you know, when people come to a company, I think uh, as engineers, like, you know, it's like you always want to work on kind of the like most glam thing, right? And like glam is always the thing that like delivers business line impact outside. And the reality is you can deliver substantial, if at times even greater impact by focusing internal on tools, on things of that sort. And so we've really, you know, we've, we've been able to do this over the years with engineering productivity where essentially we started to focus on engineering productivity and, and you know, finding people to build tools, internal tools, often in the industry used to be hard. But the way we talk about it is like, look, you are part of the solution. What, what you're doing is you're helping our engineers ultimately build a solution for our members and our customers. And therefore, if you don't do your job well, they can't do their job well. And it just all starts to look very glam. And so instead of going and finding someone who is uniquely interested in this, you actually just recognize that part of delivering value to our members and our customers is building these tools, is making employees more productive. And ultimately, one of the big shifts we've made is moving past the idea of just productivity. I think productivity can be kind of a, can be kind of a dual-edged sword, right? So like on one hand, like, it's like everyone wants to be productive. But the, on the other hand, like productivity feels like, well, you know, somebody's going to be like hitting me over the head with a stick until I like code more. Like what's going on? And we actually made a shift uh, years ago uh, away from talking about just productivity and actually recognizing that our goal is actually delivering happiness. So like we want our developers to be happy and satisfied with their experience here at LinkedIn. And we want the same now for every employee. We want our sales force to be happy and satisfied. We want our support team and, uh, to be happy and satisfied. And when you start to focus on making people happy, you start to do things like, you know, you actually have like an NPS for your technology. You start doing CSAT measurement. And you find that as, as happiness and satisfaction go up, like productivity sort of keeps pace, which is really powerful. And it's really easy to convince people to like work on happiness uh, over working on just productivity. It sounds better. I'm sold. I'd rather yeah, go to work to work on optimizing for happiness rather than optimizing for productivity. Yeah, totally. And like, can you imagine, like, it's like when, when, you, when people have this perspective of, I want to work on something that has immediate impact, like literally the person next to you is going, yes, thank you. 
we were just at, uh, we had our uh, large sales kickoff. Essentially, we you know, launched the year with all of our sales teams. It's been uh, all over LinkedIn. Uh, bring all of our sales individuals together and talk about the plan for the year. And uh, there were a few engineers there. One of the engineers who works on sales productivity, she told me as she's walking through the halls, salespeople kept coming by and hugging her, thanking her for the work that she does. She's like, I've never felt this love in my life. Like my family doesn't hug me this much. And it's like, you know, that's what you get when you work on productivity is you get people literally sitting next to you going, thank you so much. It's a level of uh, grat uh, gratification that I think is frankly rare in the industry otherwise. It's arguably more rewarding because you, to con your customers are outside of your building when you're delivering that value on the most glam thing, right? For the outside. But when you're delivering internal solutions, that person can like high five you from interdepartmentally. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And it's a double-edged sword because if you aren't doing it, then you're hearing the exact opposite. <laughs> but like, that's the point. That's what, that's what motivates you to work hard on it. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's just short feedback loops and, and that goes either way. <laughs> totally. Totally. So what you've been at LinkedIn for a little bit and you've grown and uh, have gone up essentially within the organization. What have you learned while doing that? Uh, Probably the biggest lesson I've had at LinkedIn, frankly, through my career, has been the importance of mentorship. Uh, I, I reflect back on my career, and it's like, you know, fantastic mentor after fantastic mentor, either through sheer dumb luck or, like, you know, divine providence. Like, I'm not, like, a credit to something. But uh, I've been very open to going out and finding mentors and finding people to learn from. And I've just been really, really fortunate. Um, and, you know, if I can share kind of the story of that growth, uh, I feel like when I first came to LinkedIn, I actually stumbled upon something that uh, like many of us in the engineering community know as kind of the secret of great engineers, but it kind of really, it really coalesced for me and became really concrete for me through my experience. And so like, this is sort of an inside secret that I'm going to share now with, you know, your, 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 uh, your listening audience. Uh, let's just, let's just make sure that hopefully this is all just engineers and nobody else, nobody else finds out our secret. But it turns out, like, what I realized is, like, really good engineers are good at lots of things, but really good engineers are really great at complaining. <laughs> like, we, we are so good at complaining. I remember when I first started at LinkedIn, uh, my orientation, it was like me and one other person, my orientation, you know, uh, the person doing the orientation, the woman in, uh, in HR comes in, and she's asking us what we're excited about uh, on our first day. And the other individual, he had this like incredible answer how he was excited about the vision and being part of this incredible team and delivering all this value in the world. And I said I was really excited about the free food. And, and she goes, you know, because that's, that's all that came to mind. And she goes, that's fantastic. You say that. But just like every other engineer, I'm going to give you about a month or two and you're going to be complaining just like everyone else. And my mind was like, that's impossible, man. That's like, those are my two favorite things, free and food. There's no way I'm going to be complaining about this. But sure enough, you know, a few months later, I was complaining. I'm like, this food isn't free enough and there's not enough of it. And I want like, like, and it's like, you know, but like, this is sort of the classic thing, right? And so I remember coming into LinkedIn and essentially my first uh, few months was a lot of complaining, which is, I think, really kind of happens all over the place in our industry people come from one company or one experience and you've seen all the things that worked and when you apply it to your new experience you're like everything's broken like literally everything here is wrong completely ignoring the fact that like you've built like this is amazing company that's been built on what i think is completely wrong but there's a power to that i think the power to the complaining 
which is not settling for good enough. And I think a lot of people enter companies and they sort of end up settling for good enough. It's like, yeah, you sort of end up being apathetic. It's okay. Yeah, you know, that's broken. Like that could be better. And this process doesn't work. And that's just okay. But it's really not okay. And it's, not, and it's never okay to be just okay with the state of affairs. Like literally all innovation in the world would stop if people were just okay. Right? Like I could imagine Reed Hoffman and you know, Alan Blue years ago founding LinkedIn going, you know what? Networking is fine. Yeah, like it could be better, but it's okay. And like LinkedIn wouldn't exist, right? Um, and it's not okay. And so like I remember being a, a very frequent complainer. And uh, part of what happened as a result of being a complainer was I found people to complain to. And those people ended up essentially becoming mentors because they got really tired of me complaining and said, all right, look, man, let's sit down. We're going to have to talk about the way you complain because it's, it's both a little unconstructive and a bit much. Uh, and so you know, Jeff, Jeff Wiener, our CEO, sat me down uh, after he started here. I ended up complaining at him uh, for hours every month. And then he started coaching me and mentoring me and telling me how to be more constructive. Then one day I suspect he got tired of me complaining at him, went out and hired a head of engineering uh, uh, who was uh, David Henke, uh, an incredible uh, technology personality, uh, one of the greatest technical leaders I've ever worked with. Uh, and he became my mentor and I was complaining at him now, but he had a very different style. You know, his style was like, he was one of these people who like classic, like, you know, he has like a book, like, the, the sort of logical book. He walks in and he's like, let me see what's broken here. All right, page one, here's what I'm going to change. Page two, here's what I'm going to change. So I made the mistake of complaining at him. <clears throat> and he had this like distinctive personality. He goes, you know, sticks a finger in my face and he goes like, comes right up against me. He goes, Mohawk. Yeah. There's two types of people in the world. You're either part of the problem or part of the solution. Which is it? And I think to myself, man, one of those seems like the right answer. <laughs> Problem bad, solution good. Uh, all right, man, I'll be part of the solution. Tell me what that means. And he's like, great, like stop complaining and go be part of the solution. Go fix it. And I'm like, look, David, that's your problem. Like that's, that's your job. I complain, you fix. Like you're head of engineering. I'm an engineer. That's how this stuff works. And he goes, no, no, no. Let me explain. Like page five, right? Like page five of his book is like, no. The person who complains most is the person who goes and fixes the problem. Uh, and so that's when uh, I got pulled out of my role and stuck into this, this uh, job of like going and fixing our infrastructure. And we had very specific problems with our service infrastructure, essentially how our services communicated with each other, how fault tolerant they were, the programming model at that level. And we made, you know, we started to make a pretty drastic change, which ultimately resulted in a project in 2011 which was uh, a, a, an all-out re-platforming effort. We, you know, we went from many branch model to a single trunk, a CICD-based uh, approach, um, tons of automation, removed essentially every process, every human-driven process, all driven off of automation, uh, you know, gave every engineer the keys to the kingdom. Any individual could push a button and release software to the site instead of having to go through a centralized committee-driven uh, approach is what we had before. And that entire transformation uh, ended up being something that I was part of uh, driving with a couple of individuals here. And as I think about my path at LinkedIn, it really, you know, my, my, my rise in sort of leadership started with embracing the fact that I couldn't just complain and I had to be part of that solution. So that's sort of like the second big thing I've learned is truly great engineers. Like they, they recognize problems. They sort of watch for, here's areas of optimization 
And they're not afraid to get their hands dirty. Like you roll up your sleeves and you just dive in and say, look, let's fix it. And you don't worry about, is this my domain or not? Like, can I? It's just, should I? If I should, I'm going to. And great cultures, truly great company cultures, empower people who have strong opinions and a desire to fix rather than drawing sort of artificial org boundaries. And so that's been sort of a really powerful takeaway for me from you know, my time at LinkedIn, kind of my growth and leadership. No, that's amazing because it's very like much like this concept of individual ownership, right? Like mm -hmm. rather than complaining, just go take action and, and make it happen. It's very entrepreneurial, like as an engineer, right? Totally. And, and that's actually one of the things I tell engineers, engineers talk about, you know, I'm at a big company, but I want to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, look, you know, as long as the culture is supportive of people taking ownership, like we have a core cultural tenant of being, being an owner, act like, acting like an owner. And as long as you sort of have a culture that supports that, you can be an entrepreneur anywhere. Like it just requires the, the, having the flame inside that says like, I see a problem that I want to go fix and I will take ownership of fixing it, which by the way, can be super uncomfortable. Like I reflect on my journey, I was working on, you know, advertising and like other revenue generating products on subscriptions and, and uh, online jobs at LinkedIn. And someone asked me to go work on infrastructure and I'd never done that before. And it didn't feel as, it didn't feel as sexy. It didn't feel as like fun for me as glamorous. But in the end, it's it like, it made all the difference. And it was, it was glamorous. It had, you know, that was the thing I had to do to have the greatest possible impact at that time at the company. And that actually is where the real glamour is. That's what needed to be done. And so I think that when you take that level of ownership, there's always this like aspect of you can be entrepreneurial and you can work, work on something and make it extremely glamorous. So recently we were talking about like gray areas. It's so like you have a, an area of mastery, area of your craft, but then always you can't go deep into everything because then you would learn everything in the world, right? It would branch infinitely. But these gray areas are areas that we kind of know exist, but we don't actually dive into them. And then recently we were talking about you know, spending 10, 15 minutes like every other week, just diving into an area that you know exists, you know could probably benefit you, but just spending that time improving. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you created a habit or have done anything like that in your career? Yeah, so uh, I think of it as, so again, you know, I think it's really important that people sort of optimize learning to the way they best learn. Like I said, like I don't find myself learning well by just like reading things. I have to either experience them, work in them, like throw myself into the, into the sort of the middle of things, the thick of things, or I learn from other people, watching other people, uh, engaging with them, learning from them, from their wisdom. And so what I've really done is I've, I've attempted, you know, any areas that I found that I have weakness in, I seek to find individuals who have mastery in those areas. And I surround myself with those people. Uh, as I took on this role from Kevin Scott, um, you know, Kevin is a remarkable engineering leader who I frankly, I wonder whether there's any gray there. Um, and I sort of like, I had this moment of imposter syndrome stepping into the role, feeling like, you know, like, am I going to be able to do all these things? Like, I, yeah, look, there's things that I do really, really well, but there are things that I know nothing about, relatively speaking. And I sat down with one of the people, one of my peers uh, at the time who ended up now being one of my reports, talking about one of those areas of weakness. And, and it was great because his answer was, well, that's why you have me. And it felt so so awesome first of all to be in a team that feels that way that is as supportive as like you know you don't need to know about this like i've got it but also then to know that here's an individual who i can learn from and so i've set up uh you know we do like quarterly reviews of all of our deep technical areas even the ones that i know nothing about where i recognize that 
you know, I provide some value to the people presenting in terms of like understanding the quarterly roadmap, helping guide things. But there's also a ton of value I gain in terms of learning about things that I honestly don't know as well. And so these individuals who are deep experts in these fields come in and talk about like AI and machine learning or talk about deep infrastructure and operations and, and data centers. And it's fantastic. And, you know, I'm just like, yeah, like, a, like just soaking it all in as much as I can. Yes. Yeah, so for definitely for areas of weakness, but like for areas of strength, like you're obviously an excellent communicator because I can just tell because I speak to a lot of people. <laughs> now, do you ever, do you ever like dive deep into an area like on community, like to improve your strengths? Hmm. That's a great point. Yeah. I think the answer is yes. Uh, I don't know that I do it uh, consciously with an intent to focus on my strengths. I think uh, one of the things that I optimize for is I invest in the areas that I most enjoy, that I sort of have a passion for. And those areas then I think naturally tend to sort of like, I balance, you know, like you have this balance of like, what do you love? What's important? And what are you good at? And I think people frequently forget like two out of three of those. And it's like, everyone's like, oh, go do this thing. Like, I love it. And it's like, are you any good at it? Well, no. Is it important? Well, maybe, but I love it. It's like, you got to sort of balance all three. And when you balance all three, I find that, you know, there's these things that I'm good at, but I'm also really, really passionate about. And there are things I'm really passionate about that I'm not very good at. Uh, and so I try to find the healthiest balance of those. And because I'm passionate about these things that I'm really good at, I invest in them constantly because I love it. Like I, I, I enjoy, like, you know, people, engineers, I think frequently talk about, like, I'm, I don't know, why should I take these, these like management development classes? Like that's boring. I love them. I think that there's like when, you know, when they're delivered well with the right content, they're powerful and they, they sort of like change your perspective in your psyche. And so I will find every opportunity I can to find learning in those domains, to like seek out mentors, to like go attend classes. I do the same with technology. You know, I uh, spent a lot of time working on front end tech, uh, front end infrastructure uh, at previous companies, actually all through my experience, starting with my first internship. Uh, and uh, so it's an area that I try and keep in touch with. And I spend a lot of time with the engineers here who work on that, just learning about what's cutting edge, like how are they thinking about things, what's going on in the industry, because it's an area of passion and as a result, an area of strength. Yeah, I kind of think of it as like if you're a knife and you could choose to either be like a really sharp knife or try to be like a spork. <laughs> <laughs> right or, or or what is it like a, a knife or i don't know yeah it's, there's like there's i don't think there's a word for like a knife that's also a spork but you could use a yeah. spork as a knife it just wouldn't work yeah. very well but you, you just kind of want the reputation for being like the sharpest knife so when anyone needs a knife like you go to that person not like well he's kind of a knife he's kind of a spoon he's kind of a fork you know it's good to it's good to be uh really really good at something Totally. You know, I, I would expand that analogy. I think it's like less that you are a knife so much as like you have a set of tools and like yeah. you could go and do things that like are completely outside that tool set or you could hone your skill with the tools you have. Because yes. like, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't very much like the idea that people are like one thing, right? This idea like you are a knife. Oh no, like you actually, you have a knife. You also happen to have a spatula. Now, like, you know, you don't have tongs. So you probably want to work with the tools you've got. You know, what's funny is I actually have a talk that I give like in person, I go around and give it at conferences and it talks about like tools in the toolbox. And one of the biggest issues people have is like, 
they'll identify themselves like as the screwdriver. And it's like, no, 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 you're the person that has a set of tools available. And they'll say, well, I can't go be that person. I can't go lead that team because I'm not that thing. And it's like, no, the, the skill you have right now, it's like you can, you can build other tools and you can make yourself uh, you know, more valuable. Totally. And actually, one of, the, one of the big learnings for me, like as I've navigated for myself, my career, my, my, my own imposter syndrome in roles that I've taken, as well as as I've helped other people, is I think people underappreciate how valuable, how valuable the tools they have are in a given context. It's like, yes, you may not be an expert at this, but you've got all of this other stuff that has extreme value in that context, and you can still deliver value there as long as you recognize your gaps and are like find ways to actively fill them. Yeah. Like I've met some programmers that are like, okay, programmers, but they're amazing at like architecting the product and, and just like spend your time there. Like we need you there. <laughs> right. Totally. And, and people will compose teams like this too, right? Where they're like, Oh, I want nothing but like badass programmers who like write, you know, thousands of lines of code a minute or something. I don't know. But it's like, <laughs> AI, and it's yeah. like, yeah, exactly. But then you're like, wait a minute, you know, great teams. And I think this is actually like when you talk about the, the whole conversation on diversity in technology, I think this is the real point is it's like what you really want is you want to compose great teams and com- great teams are composed of people with truly diverse sets of tools. Like they bring truly diverse sets of, you know, uh, uh, assets into the environment where you want the individual who thinks about architecture at like a level that like, like a systematic, you know, sort of system composer. Uh, and you want the individual who can like take that system composition and turn it into code. And you want the person who's all about like, let me break the thing you built. And you want to put all these people together because that's when you get truly great software. You know, yesterday I was talking with Ashley Goodall. Have you come across Ashley before? Okay, I highly recommend, it's got a new book called Nine Lies About Work. And he's the like head of leadership in technology development at Cisco, right? So he gets to play in his sandbox of like 73,000 people and teams and he's like obsessed with it. But one of the interesting exercises he shared on the, on the show was one of his favorite exercises he runs with teams is they sit down and they have two stickies and they'll put the team in the circle and like one sticky will say, come to me when, and then they finish the sentence. So they say, come to me when this, come to me when that. And then they say, don't come to me when and so they have this exercise that they do and they go around the room. And what's interesting is you'll find out like who's the person that can wants you to come to them when, they're, when you're having a people problem, right? Who's good at that or who, who loathes it? Like who doesn't like it? Or who wants you to come to them when you have a, a problem writing a test, right? Or a problem debugging something in production. So what you end up doing is you find out like the, the areas that the people really love and accelerate in through this exercise. Hmm, that's cool. What that's was the book again? Uh, this exercise was not in the book, but (laughs) so you can only get it on the modern CTO podcast, but (laughs) (laughs) it's called nine lies about work. And they talk about giving feedback and like how it doesn't work and how to make it work properly. And so it, and they used it. It was all like very Malcolm Gladwell scientific. Yeah. So it's all like counterintuitive things that the science just doesn't match what people what most people do that's very cool yeah check it out it's a good it's a good read and i think it just came out like april but yeah very cool yeah so as as we wrap up today uh, are you a fan of elon musk yeah totally have you seen what he's doing with Neuralink? by the way i i dude it's amazing it's yeah 
I'm like, yeah. I, I'm so excited about it because did you watch like the, the shortened version of the Neuralink like announcement? No, no, no. <gasps> Dude, you are going yeah, to love it. Good. So okay. they've been working secretly for like two years, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, they just released what they've been working on for two years. And they've got these like, it's like this little computer and these little strains that get like weaved into the brain. And then it's just, it's amazing. Uh, so I'll, I will have to go check that out. Yes, you definitely, you will absolutely love it. But let's say that you're driving home from work today, right? And up next to you pulls Elon Musk, right? Mm -hmm. Rolls his window down. He's in the brand new 2020, right? He's not even out yet. So you get real excited. You go follow him back to his, his, uh, SpaceX facility, right? Where he's working it's on really creepy by the way. Yeah, I know it is what it is. Sometimes you just have to go with it. <laughs> So you're like, yeah, I definitely want to see the Star Hopper. Like, I want to see the next rocket engine. Totally. So you go back, and he's like, I've got a secret for you, Mohawk. He's got a time machine. You get to go in the time machine and go back. <laughs> I go through a lot of work to get these. Yeah, this is, this is a huge setup. Huge setup. I mean, you could have literally just started with, like, imagine you had a time machine. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. All right, so you go in the time <laughs> machine. You get to go back to your past self, right? Yeah. Uh, right when you're in college, right when you're learning, first learning, uh, and give yourself some piece of advice for your career, what would that be? So uh, it's funny. My answer to this question has traditionally been change nothing <laughs> because it worked out, man. Like chaos theory. If I say anything, who knows what happens? Let's just be clear, you know? Like here I am, head of engineering at LinkedIn. My life is good. I've got two beautiful daughters loving wife, fantastic family. I've got my help. I'm like, please don't change anything. But <clears throat> uh, all that being said, uh, there's probably one thing I would tell myself in, or I wish I knew uh, in college. You know, it's sort of an interesting thing. I think a lot of people uh, who, you know, end up at companies like LinkedIn uh, in technology are some of the smartest people they've ever known. Right. And like, that was what I remember of myself. Like when I was in high school, like I used to think I was like, you know, I was, I was something else. Right. And I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm smart. Like I got this. And when I went to college, I was like, I'm pretty smart. I got this. Right. And like, I remember, you know, feeling like I was coasting through college and then I hit the workplace and I realized I was nothing. And it took me a while actually to come to that realization. It took a, it took a, again, uh, the mentor, uh, one of my managers one time, <laughs> Okay. I'm going to tell a quick story. Okay, yeah. Uh, all right, so, so uh, at my last company, we used to, it was like, you know, in the 2000, like early 2000, uh, in 2000, I started in 2000. So like the early 2000s, it was still sort of like right before the dot-com bubble burst. And, uh, you know, company cultures were still sort of a little bit like, tech, tech company cultures were still a little bit of the like, uh, the, the, you know, the, the silliness that you hear about sometimes. And we used to have these tricycles, like these industrial strength tricycles that we'd ride. And the ed edges of our cubes had removable sort of end caps that were plasticky we, that we'd use as like a lance and essentially have like jousting tournaments on tricycles. And one time I was bored. Uh, I'd been asked to work on this really important thing. I was bored and I was like, kind of like had hit this like mental block. And so I was on my tricycle, just like riding around in a figure eight in the middle of a hallway. And my manager comes to me and she pulls me aside and she's like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And I'm like, sure. I'm going to her office and she says, Mohawk, uh, what are you doing? And I was like, is this a trick question? It's pretty obvious. I was riding my tricycle. She's like, no, no, no. What are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? She said, look, you've got this like really important thing you're working on. Like, what's going on with it? 
I'm like, look, I kind of hit a mental block. I needed a break. And she's like, you can't be doing that. I'm like, why? She says, look outside. Everybody out there is like smarter than you. Everybody out there is working harder than you. Like everybody out there has the same education or better. And like, they're hungry. You've got this thing that's the most important project you're working on and you're goofing around. Like, that's just not going to cut it. That's not the see. Like, that's not how you succeed. You can't coast through on smarts anymore. And it was this like mind blowing realization for me where I was like, oh yeah, good point. And I feel like, you know, early in my career, I sort of started with the assumption that like smarts were enough and they just aren't, they never were. Like you've got, and like to your point about Elon, like it isn't enough that he just has these like brainstorm ideas. Like the dude is just, I mean, honestly, when does he sleep? Right? Like uh, he's CEO of two companies and in the background, he's like trying to like disrupt human intelligence. Like it's amazing. Right. Um, and like that takes incredibly hard work. Anything worth doing, it takes a ton of effort and dedication and passion. And I would tell myself that. I would like tell myself that story of like, this is going to happen to you. If you don't want that to happen to you, you better start working your ass off right now. Well, now you're the CEO of Hyperloop because you messed with the theory. <laughs> <laughs> On today's podcast, the CEO of Hyperloop, Mohawk. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a modern CTO. Wait, what happened? Yeah. It's a new podcast. The modern podcast. CEO. Yeah, the modern CEO. Modern CXO. We'll we'll yeah. figure it out. Jake will edit it up so it sounds good. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mohawk, for coming on and sharing this amazing advice. It's absolutely fa- fantastic to get to meet you. Uh, the next time I'm out in your neck of the woods, I'll let you know and maybe we'll come by and say hello. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast chatting with you. And I am a huge fan of your podcast. I've listened to many of them and uh, it's just, it's such great stuff. The NASA episode's pretty good if you haven't caught that one. It's one of my right, first. I will get to it. And then if you ever need anything, like if you ever need an introduction to a past guest, you're like, well, oh, that person's really cool. I want to, I want to talk with them. Do not hesitate. My Rolodex is your Rolodex. Whatever you need, just let me know. Perfect. Absolutely. Thank All you. Right. Definitely, definitely hit me up if you're in the area. I will. Have a fantastic day. All right. All right. See you, bud. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help, please take a moment right now to open up the iTunes app and leave a review of the podcast. If you take a screenshot of the review and text it or email it to a friend who needs to listen to the podcast and then CC me, joel at moderncto.io. If you CC me on the email, I'll send you a copy of the Modern CTO book or give you a shout out on the podcast, whichever you prefer.